My name is Erskine Bell, the host of the Black Self-Sabotage Trap podcast. This podcast takes an honest look at why so many Black Americans continue to lag behind all other groups in so many areas. Is this a byproduct of racism? Or is it largely due to the influence of Black culture? Black self-sabotage. In our last episode, Blame It on the Police, we talked about events from the police's point of view. Today, in Paul Harvey's words, the rest of the story. Today, we'll take a look at events from the other side. Remember, there are two sides to every story. Your side, my side, and then there is the truth. I wanted to get a boots-on-the-ground understanding on why so many black people have such a mistrust for the police. I wanted to go out and talk to a lot of different people in the community. I have a tendency to be too academic when looking at problems, only looking at numbers. But today, I wanted to go out and talk with people to see why they had such issues trusting the police. I did my research, got my statistics. Even though I was going out in the community, I love to have numbers when I talk to people, especially about issues where people tend to be a bit emotional. My first stop was the gym where I work out. There were several guys that I work out with whenever I go there, so I asked them the question, why do you think black people seem to always be angry with the police? They said, the guy over there is the guy that you need to talk to. So I went over, got into rotation, did a few sets with him, and started the conversation. And for some reason, they knew that he was the, the guy that I needed to talk to. So when I asked him the question, he said, the police stopped me for missing taillight. And when they stopped me, they searched my car and they found some drugs in my trunk. So I asked him, were they your drugs? He said, I don't do drugs. I don't sell drugs. So I said, so what are you telling me? That the police planted the drugs in your car? How likely is that? Are you trying to tell me that the police frame you? He went on as if I was not asking those questions. And he said, I did seven months in the county jail. And then one day they just let me go. I said, why did they just let you go? He said, Take out your phone, and I want you to look up Sheriff Deputy Zachary Webster. I want you to Google that. So I Googled the name, and up popped this story. He said, now take a minute to read it. So I read it. A former North Florida Sheriff Deputy was convicted Tuesday of planting drugs on innocent motorists. Following a week-long trial that included testimony, from a dozen people who said they were framed, a jury found Judge County Sheriff Deputy Zachary guilty of 19 of 67 criminal charges, including racketeering, 
false imprisonment, fabricating evidence, official misconduct, and drug possession. The Tallahassee Democrat first reported in September 2018 that local prosecutors were dropping dozens of cases involving Webster after body cam footage appeared to show him planting a small bag of meth in a woman's car during a traffic stop. The Democrat later published accounts by several other people who claimed they were framed by Webster during traffic stops. So I said, oh, wow, that, were you one of them? And he said, you're damn right I was one of them. I spent seven months in jail. I lost my house. I lost my job. I lost everything because of a crooked police officer. And then I tried to share my statistics with him on how infrequent this type of thing happened, but uh, he really didn't want to hear it. So I decided to leave him alone at that point. My next person that I talked to was a guy that I meet up from time to time when I go out walking. I walked six miles three times a week. And when I'm out walking, I run into people that walk part of the way. And this one guy that I walk with, I was particularly interested in talking with him because he was a well-educated, mature Christian man. So when we started walking together, there was this one story that I wanted to share with him and ask his opinion on it. So I had the story all queued up, and I was ready to go with it. So I started to read the story to him as we walked. A federal appeals court Wednesday upheld a death sentence for Dalen Roof, the white man convicted in the mass shooting of black members of the church in Charleston, South Carolina. The court recounted the crimes of Roof, who was 21 years old, admitted white supremacists, entered the church on June 17, 2015, and joined a Bible study group. The parishioners welcomed Roof, handed him a Bible and a study sheet, the court says. For the next 45 minutes, Roof worshipped with the parishioners. They stood and shut their eyes for closing prayer. Roof then took out his gun and started shooting. The court said, parishioners dove on the tables to hide. Roof continued shooting, reloading multiple times. After firing approximately 74 rounds, Roof reached one parishioner who was yet praying aloud. He told her to shut up and then asked if she was shot. Roof told her, I'm going to leave you here to tell the story according to the uh, record. The guy I was walking with, he was familiar with the story, and he said when the police caught up with him after 16 hours, he told the police that he was hungry. And the police took him to Burger King to get him some food after he had killed nine people. And he looked at me and said, now if the police could escort a man that they knew that just had killed nine people in cold blood to Burger King to get a burger. Why could they not have just woke Rashad Brooks up? 
He was the guy I talked about last week that was in the line at Wendy's. He was drunk and he had fallen asleep. He said, now why could they not have just walked him home? The man was drunk. He had not killed anybody. Then he went on to say, I can't stand the police. So not to miss an opportunity, I said, but don't your faith cause for you to forgive everybody, to forgive and to forget? He said, yes, I can forgive, but we can never, ever forget how the police have treated us in this country. And the way in which he said it, I knew that he meant it. And then the last person that I talked to was the service manager at the car shop where I took my truck in for service. And when I was talking with him, he was an older gentleman, black guy, and from his accent, I knew that he was from New York. So I asked him, did you live in New York when Bloomberg was the mayor? He said, yes. And I asked him, I say, how did you feel about stop and frisk? He said, wow, I used to get stopped on my way going to work. If I went out for lunch, I got stopped. And on the way home, I got stopped. Some of the stuff he said, I can't really say on the podcast because I want to keep its clean rating. However, his biggest issue with the police was, he said sometimes when they stopped him, they tried to provoke him. I asked him, so do you think that you were being profiled? I have a talent that can make almost anyone blind with rage that talked to me for a while. My talent asserted itself, and I asked him, I said, hypothetically, if black people are committing most of the crime and you are tasked with stopping crime, wouldn't you look more closely at black people? He said to me, if you were not a customer, I'd tell you something. So I pushed him a little bit further. I took out my notes. And I said, this is something that I took from Bloomberg's speech. Here's what he had to say. He said, stop and frisk is an important part of that success. It has taken some 8,000 guns off the streets over the past decade. There is just no question that stop and frisk has saved countless lives, and we know the most of those lives saved, based on statistics, have been black and Hispanic young men. As recently as 1990, New York City averaged more than six murders a day. Today, we've driven that down to less than one murder a day. If murder rates over the last 11 years had been the same as the previous 11 years, more than 7,300 people who today are alive would be dead. So I asked him, I said, Bloomberg is saying here that his stop and frisk program saved 7,300 lives, people that would have been killed had he not put this program in place. And I say, he goes on to say, stop and frisk has helped us prevent those crimes from occurring, which has not only saved lives, it has helped us to reduce incarceration rates by 
even as incarceration rates in the rest of the nation have gone up. He goes on to say, Let's be clear. People have a right to walk down the street without being targeted by the police, and we have a duty to uphold that right, which is why I've signed a law banning racial profiling, and it's why the NYPD has intensified its training around the stop and frisk question. But people also have a right to walk down the street without being killed or mugged. And for those rights to be protected, we have to give the members of the police department the tools they need to do their jobs without being micromanaged and second guessed every day by a judge or a monitor. So he asked me, What are you saying? I say, I'm not really saying anything, I'm just reading from the speech. Does he have a point? Was being tortured every day by the police worth saving lives? He said, Before I answer your question, let me ask you a few questions about this law and justice approach that you're talking about. He looked me right in the eye and he said, Tell me truly, on January the 6th, had that been 30,000 black people storming the Capitol, would it have taken four hours for the National Guard to get there? If they were black, Do you think they would have been given the opportunity to go home? Or would there have been 30,000 bodies laying there on the Capitol grounds? Why was the approach different? And he said to me, You don't have to answer because I already see the answer in your eyes. He then took out his phone and he read me this story. On Tuesday, U.S. District Court Judge Michael Moore sentenced Artesiano to three years in prison. According to the New York Times, Artesiano was found guilty of commanding officers to arrest black people for crimes they did not commit in order to give the impression that his department was solving crimes. He went on to say, reading the story, When I took the job, I was not prepared. Artisano told Judge Moore on Tuesday, I made some very, very bad decisions. Records uncovered by the Miami Herald suggest that wrongful arrests targeting innocent black people were a frequent practice during his two year term as chief. Artisano resigned from the police department in 2014. One officer quoted in an internal investigation of the department said, If they had burglaries that are open cases that were not solved yet, if they saw any black person walking through our streets and they had somewhat of a record, we arrested them so that we could pin all of the crimes on them for the burglaries. Over the summer, three former Biscayne police officers who worked under him while he was chief in 2013 and 2014. Were indicted and pled guilty to civil rights violations, admitting to making false arrests in some cases. Each officer was sentenced to one year in prison. He said to me, Now, they were convicted of using their police powers just to lock black people up. 
he only gets three years. The officers get one year, and they had put people that had been in jail for years. Do you think this is right? Do you think that we can just blindly trust the police? And then he said to me, tell me, do you think there are only bad cops in Miami? And before I could answer, he was reading me another story. A Baltimore police detective accused of taking part in a conspiracy to plant a gun on suspect was found guilty in federal court on Monday. Robert Hankert's case was related to the gun trace test force investigation, which alleged widespread corruption in the ranks of the Baltimore Police Department. After deliberating for about two hours, the jury found Hankert guilty on all five counts. And he said, now back to your story. No, I don't trust the police to stop me at any time for any reason. I could tell that he was really, really angry at that point. He was visibly angry, and I I knew that there was more to come. I knew that this was personal with him. He said, now, the last thing I want to tell you before I get back to work. In 1960, I was seven years old. And I want you on your own time to go and take a look at what happened on August the 27th, 1960. I was there. I want you to read that story and then you will understand. And then he stormed off and went back to work. So when I got home, I looked up the story. And here's what I found. On August the 27th, 1960, over 200 white rioters armed with baseball bats and axe handles chased, beat, and threatened black residents in Jacksonville, Florida. The Florida Historical Society describes the riot. The violent act was in response to peaceful lunch counter demonstrations organized by the Jacksonville Youth Council. The attack began when white people started spitting on the protesters and yelling racial slurs at them. When the young demonstrators held their resolve, they were beaten with wooden axe handles. While the violence was first aimed at the lunch counter demonstrators, It quickly escalated to include any African-Americans in sight of the white mob. Now, here's the part that really got me in the story. The police stood idly by watching the beatings until the black people started to fight back. At that point, police nightsticks joined the baseball bats and axe handles. I could see now why He was so angry and why this really had affected his life so much. Can you imagine a seven-year-old child experiencing something like this? I probably talked to 15, 16 other people, and each one of them had a story to tell. How do we fix this problem? We need law and order. Most police do an excellent job. But truth to be told, historically, 
that police have not always done right by the black community. Helping to create this atmosphere of distrust. But is the solution? Black people need to get a handle on the crime problem. Therefore, they would not be having as many encounters with the police. And could the resolution to the problem be that there need to be more accountability on the part of law enforcement for bad decisions and bad actions? I would love to hear from you. Let's talk about how we can make this work. Thanks for tuning in today. Remember, we are the masters of our own destinies. If you enjoyed the episode today and would like to be made aware when new episodes are posted, please subscribe on Apple or Google Podcasts. Or you can visit us at BlackSelfSabotageTrap.com. We would love to hear from you. Send us your comments about our show by using the website contact page to send us an email or clicking on the microphone icon to send us a voice message. Cheers. <laughs>